time to do such a um, discussion with particularly, I mean, we're on the march to November right now. Um, and things are heated and they're going to get more and more heated as we get closer to November. And there is, why, and, and so you'll hear me say this a lot, I've said it before, I, I don't think Jesus is a Republican, I don't think Jesus is a Democrat, okay? Um, but I do think there's a Christian way to do politics, to think about it, to talk about it, to relate to it. Um, and it's important that we attempt to do that um, and get past a lot of the highly emotional rhetoric um, and demonizing and partisan feuding um, that our nation often gets just really trapped in. Um, so interestingly enough, we'll see a bit of that today in Acts uh, 13 as um, Saul and Barnabas are going to encounter opposition. And I want to use the way that they encounter this opposition as a way of maybe thinking through some issues on our own. Okay, So we'll pick up in Acts chapter 13 starting in verse 1. Go ahead and read with me here. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Okay, these three verses, um, if you, I mean, I don't know how it's laid out in your Bible. You might want to just put a block around them or a big circle because this is the big turning point, not only in the book of Acts, but also in history. In history itself, it might be hard to overstate what we just read in a matter of seconds in these three verses. From here on out, both in history and in the book of Acts, there's going to be an intense mission to the Gentiles, to people who are not Jewish, that will change the world. In just a few centuries, the Roman Empire will be predominantly Christian. Because this church in Antioch said, let's intentionally go find the Gentiles. The reason you and I, Gentiles, believe in Jesus, follow him, the reason why most of the churches we see would be populated by what would be called Gentile people, people who are not originally allowed in on this, is because of this church in Antioch. This is a game changer, major game changer. It's also a shift in the book of Acts. From here on out, Paul, or Saul, talk about that a little today, will be our main character, okay? He's going to be the hero of the story, noting that really the hero is the Holy Spirit, okay? So the title of the book is Acts of the Apostles, but when you really read it, it's really the Acts of the Spirit. I mean, he's kind of everywhere, directing everything, guiding everything. Um, he's the, the kind of main character here. Also notice, um, from here on out, we have kind of a direction to the plot. So Luke loves to tell stories, big stories, meta-narratives, the big books, with a geographical journey theme, okay? He likes to connect all the little stories with this idea that we're going somewhere on a journey. Um, and so Luke, the Gospel of Luke, if you read the Gospel of Luke, um, it's different than Matthew and Mark in this sense. Matthew and Mark focus most of their time on Jesus' ministry in Galilee, okay? So north of Jerusalem where he grew up. And then at the very end, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, dies, and resurrects. But Luke spends very little time on Jesus' life in Galilee and starts a very long journey narrative, nine or ten chapters, where Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. And the whole book kind of has that plot to it. What's happening in Luke? And he has a little signpost along the way. Um, well, we're going from Jer Galilee to Jerusalem. We're on the journey with Jesus to whatever's about to happen in Jerusalem. Um, now, you'll remember Acts, volume two, part two of Luke Acts, picks up where? In Jerusalem. With the early church. And they spent a few chapters here we've seen growing and getting their feet under them in Jerusalem. Now we have another geographical journey, another travel narrative that's going to keep us focused. Now we're going to Rome. So we've gone from Galilee, where Jesus was born, 
to Jerusalem, where you have the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the early church starting. And now we're going from Jerusalem to Rome, to the empire, to the ends of the earth, to the end of the world. And in fact, Acts will end in Rome. Okay, so this is going to be the kind of controlling narrative for us as we go on. The gospel will continue to spread and continue to grow out. So you have here in this Antioch church a big, big shift. Um, and this is really an all-star church. You have the big two churches, the other church, Jerusalem Church, which is going to be kind of the center of the Jewish mission, and then the Antioch Church, which will become a very important player um, for the next few centuries. Um, and they are, I think, for us, a model of what a church should be like um, and, and kind of the focuses a church should have and some things that they do that we could really look at and say, if we could be an Antioch-type church, that would be good. If we could be Antioch-type people, that would be good. Um, a couple things we can see here, um, just from the beginning here. Notice that this church was not comfortable maintaining the status quo. Um, they were not um, happy just to be comfortable and satisfied. Um, one of the things that they might be a model for us on. The Antioch church is a successful church. It's a happy church, the flowering church. It's in this big cosmopolitan city. We're told Saul and Barnabas come. They start teaching. They're having this great ministry. People are being converted. <sighs> Things are going well. And notice what they do. They pray, they fast, and they get rid of their best people. They're not happy to maintain. They're not happy to be comfortable. They're not inward focused. Um, they have this sense that there's work to be done and things to be sacrificed and places to go. And so they're not comfortable maintaining. They want to expand. Um, and they're what we might call a missional church. That's a big buzzword these days, missional. Um, they understand that to be a follower of Christ means that you are what? A witness from Acts 1. You are called to go to people who don't know Christ and share with them the truth. To be a witness to his death and resurrection. They're called to engage the world. And this is kind of built into our mission statement here at the church. We're supposed to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And we want to constantly come back to that and, and think about and see, are we as a community, have we adopted that? Have we really surrendered to that call that our job is not for us, but is to engage the world around us, is to go be a light, to go be a witness? And then individually, I mean, have you adopted that? Have you, uh, we're, I think, surrounded by a Christian culture that thinks being a Christian is all about cultivating our inner spiritual life. And so we come to church, we work on being better Christians, and if we can, we might end up converting a person or talking to someone about Jesus. Where I think the picture in Scripture is much more activity-based. It's much more, no, this is your new purpose in life. There is no individualized spirituality. You're called to go engage the people around you. And Antioch does this very well. We see that Antioch here, and this may be the most interesting thing about this, these three verses, they had written God a blank check in order for him to fulfill their purpose to engage the world. They had loose hands on everything about them. Not that there is a JV and a varsity in terms of Christians and in terms of leadership. If there were, <laughs> Saul and Barnabas are varsity, right? I mean, these are, are two all-stars. These are the guys, I mean, Paul's going to be maybe the, the most famous and important Christian since Jesus. The Antioch church lets them go happily. Like there's, it doesn't, they commission them. It's not like, oh, please don't leave, but, but they go. And note here, we're not talking about two leaders, two people 
who are kind of those people where you're like, we'll miss you, but nothing really changes, right? I mean, they leave, and unless you really thought about it, you wouldn't notice they're, they're, they're being gone. These are two people who, if they left, everyone would look around going, what do we do now? You know, what, what, what's the, what, what are we supposed to do now? Who's going who's gonna to take up after them? But the Spirit says, hey, I want Saul and Barnabas to come do this. And they go, okay. They trust, they obey, they listen, they have a blank check. There are no golden calves for this church. There are no things that are untouchable. And sometimes it's easy to get into that kind of state of mind as a church or as just an individual Christian. We have these certain things God's not allowed to touch. But to really be a faithful community, to model ourselves after Antioch, there's a blank check. We say, God, use us. Send us out. Whatever you want is yours. You have full control over us. Everything's on the table. Complete and total surrender. Um, I want to notice... um, how this church became about, okay? Antioch doesn't happen accidentally. The group in Antioch, who are faithful enough to listen to the Spirit and send out Saul and Barnabas, and Saul and Barnabas, who leave Antioch, um, they don't happen overnight. Um, They don't happen accidentally. No one, and, and this is sometimes, I think, one of the silliest things about some of American Christianity, no one accidentally becomes godly. Does that make sense? You're not gonna wake up tomorrow and all of a sudden not struggle with your problems oh, hey, look, I'm a great Christian now. It's going to take what? I mean, if you've done this, it's going to take prayer and work and sacrifice and tears and failure and people to encourage you. It's going to take dry seasons. It's going to take fruitful seasons. It's going to take in and out daily commitment. You don't just like kind of stumble into it and not know how you got there. And the Antioch Church was the same way. Um, I want to take you back real quick to chapter 11 um, and look again at their start. Um, in chap- we'll pick up in verse 19 here. Because um, I think we're giving some clues to what makes Antioch Antioch, okay? Um, so we'll pick up chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the words of no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Notice we don't even have their names. Some guys decided to talk to some people who aren't Jewish about Jesus and Antioch. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent, who? Barnabas, to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord's steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, former persecutor of the church, converted. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. Now, this next line, I think, is the key to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. They met and they taught. For how long? For a year. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. In those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus uh, stood up and foretold by the Spirit there would be a great famine over all the world. The disciples determined, according to their abilities, to send relief to the poor in Judea. They did so with Barnabas and Saul taking it. Antioch is a big cosmopolitan city. Lots of different cultures. It's a melting pot. Lots of different ways that stand in opposition to the way of Jesus. And so Paul, or Saul right now, and Barnabas 
meet for a year and teach them the scriptures. They have community. They live life together. And they consistently and committedly learn and study the scriptures and grow together. They help each other. They hold each other accountable. They meet together. They live together. They're taught together. And over time, through that consistent commitment to living together, they find themselves in Acts chapter 13 on the big stage of God's mission in the world and ready to go. Why? Because they had done the hard work of talking to each other and of discussing and of disagreeing and of praying and of listening and studying. They had been a faithful community. They had been a faithful community. And so they get to Acts chapter 13 with this consistent meeting and this consistent teaching. And in Acts chapter 13, they're ready. You see them, the picture of the church in Antioch. Um, they're worshiping and they're fasting. They're asking the Spirit to move in them, to speak to them. They're not happy with what they've got. There's this kind of holy discontent for the Spirit to move more, to do more, for them to see His power in greater and greater and greater ways, to the point where they are um, giving up food to pursue His will, to have Him speak to them. We've um, practiced fasting here before where we will take a day and say, hey, we're not going to eat because as much as hunger is a basic need for our life, God is, is more of a basic need for our life. We want to hear from him. We want to be obedient to him. This is what the church is doing here. We'll probably, I'm imagining as we come closer to the fall, um, have maybe a day or two of fasting here. And, and, and we're seeing a model, I think, again, of this Antioch church. And how are they formed? How do they get to this place where they can, in a sense, change the history of Christianity? Well, because they had done hard work in community. And because they were worshiping and fasting. And then they were willing to obey they were willing to, to send off, um, to sacrifice, to do what the Lord had asked them to do. And I wonder in, in our community and, and in us individually, if, if we're there. I mean, if, if we, because again, I, I don't think you, you get to Antioch accidentally. I don't think you get to be a person who fits comfortably at Antioch accidentally. It's going to take community. It's going to take people helping you. So, so these Gentile believers who, who come into the church in Antioch are coming out of lifestyles that are far um, in opposition to the lifestyle of one who would follow Jesus. And so they're used to worshiping at the temples, the pagan temples. They're used to having orgies at the temples. They're used to um, spending their money in a certain way and treating their children and their women in a certain way. And they have all these things about their life that are at odds with what's required to follow Jesus. And as anybody who's ever had a bad habit and tried to stop it knows that takes work. It takes time. And that takes other people. We'll talk about this a bit more in just a second. But, but sometimes I think we imagine that the world around us, the world that is not following Christ or knowing him as their Lord, is not too far away from living as a Christian should live. I'm not so sure about that. I'm not so sure that what it takes to really form into a community like Antioch is this kind of consistent commitment to learning how to live differently, to learning how to live as a new people, with new habits, with new thoughts, with new speech, with new actions. And Antioch did this, and then they were ready, right? If, now, if they hadn't done this hard work, if they, they hadn't positioned themselves in this place, the Spirit comes, they might not hear, they might miss out, the Spirit might pass them by. 
But by the grace of God, they were ready. And they send off Saul and Barnabas on what would be called um, Paul's first missionary journey. So this is the first overseas mission. This is the first kind of strategic planned out mission um, to the Gentiles. And Paul will, throughout the course of Acts, go on three missionary journeys. Okay, The last two might not be best called journeys um, because he kind of hunkers down for years at certain places. So he's not like traveling in the way we would think of traveling. This first one, though, maybe. Okay, he's kind of hitting cities and going kind of fast. Um, and so he heads off on his first missionary journey. We'll follow him, uh, verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. This is a, a port city by Antioch, next to the sea. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. Okay, Cyprus is a big island on the west. Next week we'll throw up a map uh, and see what we're doing here geographically. When they arrived at Salamis, um, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Okay, a couple things to point out. We see here an MO, a method of operation for the early um, Christian missionaries. One, they go to the Jewish people first, and then they go to the Gentiles. This will be consistent throughout the book of Acts. Two, they head to big cities, to capitals or to Roman colonies. They want to hit the big cities, get the word out to as many people as possible. Now, in this, uh, on the island of Cyprus, we meet two characters who are going to be in this little short story. The first is a false prophet or a magician, um, what we might call like the dark arts, okay, black magic. Um, and he has some sort of spiritual power, he has some sort of prophetic ability, and he has some sort of audience um, in Cyprus. And he's called Bar-Jesus, um, which would mean son of Jesus, okay, or Joshua. This is a very common name, kind of like Bob or Bill, um, in America. Um, and so he meets this magician guy, and then he meets the governor of the island, okay, the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Um, and, and we'll see what happens here. But Elimus, verse 8, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, so this is still Bar Jesus, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, there's the shift, if you're wondering, why do we call Saul Paul? It happened right there in front of you. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Tell us what you really think, Paul. (laughs) And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Okay, I think we see an important principle here um, that we'll play off of this morning. As, as, as Saul and Barnabas seek to engage the world as witnesses to the work and life of Christ, to the, the, the way of life he's created for his followers, they encounter opposition. When they go into enemy territory, you might say, when they go into a world that is not used to living the way of Jesus, is not used to worshiping the one risen Lord, they meet opposition. There's this full-scale, deeply-seated um, stance against what, what Christ has done and is doing and is doing through his apostles. They meet this in Bar-Jesus. Now notice what Paul does when he meets this. He confronts it. He calls it out and moves past it. 
A couple things to notice about the story. Um, he calls him the son of the devil, um, which is, uh, if you were to put that in Aramaic or uh, Hebrew, that would be Bar Satan. Okay? Um, so notice the play on words happening here. He says, you're not Bar Jesus, you're Bar Satan. You're, you're son of the devil here. Um, this is a very harsh statement, okay, by Paul. He's really not holding back a lot. I would hope not. I don't know. I don't know what another level past this is. Um, he almost sounds here like First John, or, or like John does in um, his letters. I don't know if you remember this. A long time ago, we preached in the book of First John, um, and John sees the world in black and white, and it's pretty clear to him. Okay, there's not these shades of gray. He says you're either a son of, of God or you're a son of the devil, um, and there's really just not a whole lot of playground between the two of those. Um, and, and Paul seems to, to march in these footsteps here. Um, so he calls him son of the devil. And then, after kind of calling him out a bit and saying, look, here's what you're doing. You're completely opposed to the work of God. This is not um, what, what you should be doing. He notices and, and calls out that the hand of the Lord is about to blind him. And so while he's blinded people or trying to blind people to the truth of the gospel, now God will blind him for a time period. Notice, though, how similar what happens to Bar-Jebus or Bar-Satan, um, how similar it is to what happened to Paul just a few chapters ago. Three things in particular. One... They both find themselves opposed to God's work, maybe not knowing so. Two, they're both blinded for a short period of time. Three, um, and this is in both stories, they both need someone to lead them by the hand. There's a lot of overlap here between these stories, almost as if Paul's watching this story play out. He's like, hey, I've seen this. I've lived through this. Maybe he's like having a little mercy on Bar-Jesus after this happens. Like, hey, I've been through it. All right, get your sight back. Come on the team. You'll be okay. Spend a few days, think about it, and then you can, you can make a good decision. Um, but he, he stands up, he confronts it, okay? Now, as the gospel goes out, as we engage the world, as we go, again, you might say, into enemy territory, places that don't know and worship the Lord, there will be opposition, both to our way of worship and to our way of living. And when the church meets opposition, when you meet opposition, when we meet opposition, there are two choices to take. The first is compromise. The second is confrontation. We can compromise or ignore. So, so maybe we don't even change our way of thinking or living, but we just kind of leave it alone. Or maybe we do kind of adopt and kind of soften and kind of change our distinct lifestyle to fit in more and more and more with the world. Or we stand up and say, I'm sorry, this is opposed to the gospel, and this is not um, the truth of Christ. This is not the truth of the gospel. And Paul, and we'll see throughout his journeys, does the second. He's all in, and he has the sense that you're either all in or you're all out, that there's no kind of compromise here. And that for the church to continue to be faithful when they meet opposition, they have to confront it. They can't compromise with it. Now, you and I are what we might call like the children of the Enlightenment, okay? Um, and so we live in the modern time period after what we call like the scientific revolution um, and after kind of us figuring out how to use our minds and use our reason and things of that nature and we all without I mean you might not even know but we've all adopted kind of a story about history a narrative all right um, and and here's here's your signpost here's how you know if you've adopted the story have you ever used the phrase or thought it or heard it in this day and age here's what you've just done you just said big signpost I'm a child of the enlightenment I believe that we have turned a corner in history. We now operate on a higher plane than people of the past because of certain things we've figured out. 
It's actually a, a eschatological narrative. I mean, it's kind of a story about history reaching its culmination. We've figured things out. This is why we look back on people in the first century when they sacrifice animals and go, y'all are silly and primitive. If only you knew what we knew, right? I mean, we kind of feel bad for them. Too bad they're, they're missing out on all this kind of stuff. This is why sometimes we read people from the first century and even before, and we're like, how are they that smart? They really knew about that kind of stuff? Um, like, my funniest thing is, my, one of my funny, the funniest things I, I hear is when people talk about how the virgin birth is not true and, and they believed it back in the first century because they just didn't really think things through. I'm like, no, they, they knew, right? <laughs> they, they knew perfectly well that this is how a human being was born. I mean, that's, that's why it costs kind of thing. But we, we have this kind of um, Western, modern kind of arrogance toward them. And, and what we've kind of adopted is the idea that as a civilization, a society, at least maybe us in the West, we have advanced to the point where we're basically good, basically figuring things out. And there's a few of us who are a little off-kilter, and there's a few people over there on that part of the world, right, with different color skin, who are, who just are way back in, in the medieval age and the, in the ancient age. But for the most part, we're figuring things out. We're pretty good. And, and so here's how we present the gospel to people. Hey, why don't you tweak a couple little things in your life? If you drop that, add that, and then raise that up just a little bit, guess what? Now you're a follower of Jesus. And we've lost the sense that to be a follower of Jesus is to, to come into a completely new lifestyle, to come into a completely new realm of living and worshiping and knowing and seeing and talking and thinking. And I want to, this morning, ask you if that's the case. Ask you if that is true. Or could it be that Today, as back then, to follow Jesus, to live in his kingdom, requires a radical transformation. And that perhaps the church, when they've met this opposition in the past, has compromised more than we'd like to admit. Perhaps we've lost our ability to confront, to name, to stand up, to be faithful. Now again, here's what goes through our minds when we hear that. We go... That sounds so much like Westboro Baptist Church. All right? You know what I'm talking about? Picket signs, God hates certain people. All right? They picket funerals, all kinds of different things. That's what, and we got a quote from N.T. Wright. Um, the first line here says, Many Christians in the Western world today can't bear to think of confrontation, except, of course, those wicked fundamentalists. Right? We know about those people who, who stand up for their beliefs, and they're kind of silly and stupid, and they embarrass all of us for being alive. Um, and so... But the opposite of that, I mean, the, the other pendulum here is either ignoring evil or bad things or compromising or, or letting it in. So, um, good example, by God's grace, happens like this. Um, unless you live under a rock, I mean, I don't, I don't know really what would allow this. Don't have a Facebook or Twitter or watch the news or talk to humans, I don't know. You'll, you'll have heard, right, what happened with Chick-fil-A this past week. Okay, so I want to take a deep breath. Yeah, we're going there. Um, <laughs> the basic story, okay, forgive me if I get a couple things wrong. The basic story is it was reported that Chick Fil A had donated some money to groups that work um, politically to keep gay marriage um, from being legal, and then the owner of Chick Fil A was asked in a religious context, um, in a religious interview, what he thought about um, the family, and he said, "quote I believe in the traditional family as laid out by the Bible." Now, this caused a lot of anger from those who wouldn't agree with those viewpoints, um, who, who see that as kind of persecution and keeping people from getting married and being happy and those kind of things. And so they said, well, forget you. We're not going to eat your food, which caused a counter-reaction 
by the people over here that said, uh, no, we're all going to eat us food. And so Wednesday was the big, they organized a big get together. I think Mike Huckabee was kind of the, the a big push behind it. And we're all going to go to Chick-fil-A. I don't know if you went or saw, but I mean, there were a lot of people there. A lot of, I think they set a record for most sales in one day. Um, and so they kind of came and stood. Now, let me say this, all right? Please hear me on this. I know Christians who love Jesus very much and who I respect and value who are on both sides of what happened Wednesday. Truly, you know, it polarized some people. So there are some people I know, again, who love Jesus and, and I very much respect and value their opinions, who thought this was the most embarrassing thing the church has ever taken part in since like the days of slavery. You'll remember, right, it wasn't too long ago a church might have had a rally to like support slavery. And they view this as like, what an embarrassment, what a failure. Again, people on the other side, who I love and value and respect, who said, this is the best thing the church has done since we made the NIV, right? This was just a great day for standing up for the word of God. And this was kind of the, the rhetoric you would hear, right? We're, we're making a stand. We're not going to compromise on this issue. We believe the scriptures say that homosexuality is against God's purposes, and so we're going to all show up and eat some chicken, and we're going to make a stand. This is not going to be an issue we fail on. I've found in talking to <clears throat> older people um, that they view their generation as failing on some issues in the church. And so they have a deep desire for us not to fail, not to compromise on certain issues. And many said, look, look at us standing up. We won't compromise on this issue. Here's what I'm going to say. Rise above these two polarities, okay? Get all partisan language out of your system. At best, I'm going to say, at best, at the most... When the church gets most publicity and most riled up about eating chicken to stand up for homosexuality, or for not homosexuality, at most, I think that means we've settled. We've settled for a, a puny influence in the world. We've settled to be used as political tools. We've settled in a huge compromise. Here's what I mean by this. It's important to not major in things that Jesus or the scriptures minored in. Does that make sense? And sometimes we do that, right? And, and here's my question. If we were to look at the church as a whole in America, would you, after thinking and discussing, would you probably lean on the side that we have compromised as a whole to ways that are not of Jesus or that we've stood up? I would think most of us would probably have to say, yeah, I mean, on most things we've compromised. Here's why it saddened me. Here's why I think at best what we did was not that impressive. Because when we showed up and ate chicken, we showed up as a church that has already accepted the world's values, particularly on marriage. So I had a, I had a friend who's much smarter than I am and, and better at putting things than I am and asking questions who said, would not divorce be a much bigger threat to the traditional family system of the scriptures than gay marriage? Now I know I have a limited circle of, of interactions um, and people I know, but I know no one who has been disenfranchised and beat down because of being raised by a homosexual couple. I know dozens of people who are adults who still can't get over the stuff their parents did to them when their parents got divorced in this nasty, ugly way going to church. I mean, if you read the scriptures, teachings on divorce are pretty clear and pretty firm throughout the whole thing. 
Jesus himself is pretty clear. At one point, he seems to say, no matter what, you don't get a divorce. At other points, he wavers a bit and says, there are a couple exceptions. But, but these are exactly that, exceptions. These are, these are big-time things that might allow for you to pursue that opportunity. Look in the church, though. We have, as a whole, just gone with the system. So divorce rates are the same inside and out. I would say we've, we've compromised in a, in a big way. That's why I say, yeah, standing up maybe against gay marriage, at best, I mean, even if you agree that that was the right thing to do, at best, that's a half-hearted attempt to be who God called us to be. I think we've, we've compromised. So let's keep playing it out, okay? What about, in the American church, greed? I mean, here's what I would say. The church, when they see something that's against the way of Jesus, should do what Paul does here and stand up and say, I'm sorry, but this is not the way Jesus has called us to live. This is not the new world he is in the process of creating, and this is not how we will act and behave. And so while we celebrate, when sometimes we think we see these small victories, we've already, I'm thinking, really lost the big battles. Think think about greed. This is maybe the biggest ethical theme in the scriptures, is how people use their money. You'll, I mean, the, the, we're already kind of stacked against us because the Bible's written by poor people, okay? I mean, I mean, if you're really being honest, this is, it's already hard for us to read what they're writing. They were all poor and persecuted. We're rich and powerful. So we have to do a lot of work even to just get kind of into their mind and see what they were thinking here. But that's the biggest, maybe, ethical theme throughout the scriptures, If you read the prophets, it seems like the thing God hates the most about what happens on this planet is when rich people get richer and poor people get poorer. Which, if you didn't know, is happening at an alarming rate. Both in our city, in our nation, and in the world. We are, as a book put it, rich Christians in an age of hunger. And we're going to go down in the history books and talk to God about our unique role in history where we have lots and most have little. And most of us didn't do much about it. The scriptures, um, I mean, so again, I mean, you look at the church, you look at the world, the people who don't worship Jesus, there's not much change here. People are just as much in debt in the church as outside of it. People have just as much stuff and kind of greed and kind of materialism and consumerism controlling them as outside of the church. We've said this before. Not only, I think, biblically, should a Christian not live above their means, but you should live at your means, right? Because you should be what? Giving money away. You should be pouring in, investing into those who are suffering and poor, trying to make a difference. But instead what we have is, like most Americans, right? I mean, we've just gone crazy with our spending. Compromise. And with each compromise... We take a step away from being God's people. And we take a step away from being this Antioch church. From being a people who could hear and be moved by and used by the Spirit. I was talking to a friend earlier this week. And uh, she was on vacation. A nice vacation. And, and uh, I'll, I'll put a disclaimer on this in saying that I've been on my fair share of expensive vacations. Okay, so This is not like a wholesale condemnation. But, but she was expecting me that the idea that she was just really blessed. God had just really blessed her to be able to enjoy this vacation. Um, and I, just by nature, I'm, I, I think through language a lot. And, and I, I always want to, I'm always analyzing, not even I want to, but analyzing particularly religious language. Why do people use the religious words they do? And what are the assumptions behind them? 
Like, what's the big operating system behind why they use those words like that? And so partly because I was jealous because I wasn't on this vacation, <laughs> but partly because that's just kind of how I think, I started wondering about how appropriate it really is to say that God blessed you to go on an extravagant vacation. And wondering if our whole idea of blessing has already been hijacked by consumerism, by the American dream. I mean, if we've already, if we've already lost the boat here. In fact, again, I've been on my fair share. I'll probably be on another in my lifetime, okay? But I'm, I'm not convinced that economic success is God's blessing. I'm not convinced that luxury and leisure is God's blessing. In fact, I think in my own life and in the life of people I just watch, oftentimes that's one of the biggest things keeping them away from God. It would maybe be more appropriate to call it God's wrath in Romans 1 style, where he just lets you do what you want and get further and further and further away from him. Seems like, I mean, we'd have a hard time understanding suffering as being a blessing, being poor as being a blessing. And, and we have all these ideas and confusions and I mean should that should we be martyrs then? I mean should we should we just throw all our money away, be responsible and be poor, um and, and just go live this kind of um homeless lifestyle and things of that nature. Um because we've so just wholesale baptized a way of living that's not scriptural. To the point where we have redefined words. So God in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, I'm sorry, in the Sermon on the Mount, um God incarnate, tells us who God blesses. And while I'm not anti-America by any means, every 4th of July when I hear the phrase, God bless America, I, I can't help thinking about the Sermon on the Mount. He tells us who he blesses. Do you remember who it is in Luke? Poor people. Hungry people. People who are crying and mourning, being persecuted. People who are working for peace. Not just wishing there was peace, working for peace. Making it. Doing it. Again, I'm not just convinced I mean, I, I'm not, I'm not, I haven't gotten to the point where I would think us being really economically successful is really God's blessing on our life. Particularly because I think just we've compromised. Maybe there's a point where you could say that. But as a whole, I think we, we've, we've bought into greed here. Um, I mean, particularly, I think, relevant for the Chick-fil-A thing was um, gluttony, right? I mean, we... we <laughs> eat and take care of our bodies the same way as the rest of Americans. Um, just big, happy, hungry people. Um, and so we, we, you have this choice, okay? When, when Christians go out to engage the world, they meet things that are not the way of Jesus. And at that point, you have a choice to compromise or to confront. But it's important to confront the right way, right? Not Westboro Baptist way, okay? I think we get a clue if we look at how Paul does things here about possibly how we could confront the evil in our world that stands opposed to what Jesus is calling from us, all right? Notice the first thing that Paul does in verse 9. Um, he looks intently at him. So he, he looks, takes notice, kind of peers into the heart, and then he says it for what it is. He names it. He calls it out. He says, you son of the devil, you're against everything that God's doing. This is an important part of confronting evil, is to call it for what it is, to say, I'm sorry, but that is not the way of Jesus. It's not to ignore it, it's not to go away from it, and it's not to adopt it. It's to call it out, to name it, to say and put it out in public, this is a wrong. This is not how one should act in God's new creation. 
this is an important part of forgiveness, you realize, right? So I teach high school, and you kind of have like a, uh, these free lectures in the back of your mind that you can give out when the opportunity needs, um, needs it. Um, and one of them is, is forgiveness. When someone offers you an apology, it's inappropriate to say it's okay or you don't need to. Either they need to apologize or they don't. If they did something wrong to you, you do what? I accept your apology. Why? Because you have to name that wrong. It has to be wrong for there to be forgiveness. There's no forgiveness. You go, no, don't worry about it. Uh, you don't really need to apologize. It was, it was whatever. I had it this week. Someone apologized to me. Usually I'm on the other end, okay? But this time, <laughs> someone apologized to me. And I, my immediate reaction was to go, no, don't worry about it. And I had to kind of, oh, no. I was like, I accept your apology. You did it wrong. We're forgiven. We're reconciled. You have to name it. And I think the, the best ethicist in the world right now, dealing on a global level and on a smaller level, realize this. You have to name the wrong. I mean, this is kind of, you kind of pick up on this in the global realm, and even historically. Um, the reason we have Holocaust museums, I have students sometimes who, who tell me, why do we still focus on that so much? It was, it was awful and messy, and can we just forget it? Like, that's not what we don't need to do. We need to all agree that that was wrong. We need to be able to name it. You know, this is what it looks like, and this is not allowed. This is wrong. Then we name it, so we might call it proclamation, all right? He proclaims the truth. Then he prophesies, or he names the consequences. Again, I think the, the leading ethicists are saying, this is how you do this. You name the wrong, the evil, and then you name the consequences. In this case, it was a supernatural, spectacular thing where the Lord comes down, the hand of the Lord, and blinds him. Um, and, and situations on our level, I think this is, again, just pointing out how this works against creation. So by saying, hey, when you hurt that child in that way, these are the things that you are sinning against. These are all the consequences of that action. This is how it's dehumanizing creation. This is how it's breaking down relationships. This is how that is bringing death into the world. You proclaim and then you prophesy. And then I think this is crucial. This is the big distinction. You, you work for reconciliation. Proclaim, prophesy, reconciliation. I wanted three Ps, all right? I'm just not that good yet, okay? Can I get the alliteration down? I hope that doesn't affect me come pay time in January when we look at it as a board. I'm getting there. Maybe in a year or so I'll be able to do the alliteration thing down, but, but two Ps and an R, okay? You, you work for reconciliation. You work for forgiveness. You don't seek to destroy. God's not in the business of destroying things. He doesn't come to something that's wrong and say, just gone. He does what? He says, let's make that new. Let's change that. Let's take that bad situation and make it a beautiful situation. That's God's deepest desire. It's not to just wipe out, but to transform, to renew, to reconcile, to see forgiveness happen. I mean, notice with Paul here, I have to think, and, and this is not in the text, but I have to think that, that Paul has some sympathy for Bar-Jesus. Particularly because it looks so much like him. You have to think this is not an attempt at Paul just to see some guy suffer and realize that God hates him. But an attempt for him to see the truth and beauty of the gospel and come to experience it as his own. It's important when we confront that we realize, one of my favorite quotes, the line between good and evil is not between me and somebody else. It's running down the middle of both of us. There's, there's some in me. There's some in him. Globally, this is important to engage other nations and other people groups. It's not good guys versus bad guys. It's a mixture of good and bad versus a mixture of good and bad. 
mostly, mostly bad on both sides. There's, you recognize your own sinfulness, your own forgiveness in front of God. You are for reconciliation and forgiveness. This is how I think you avoid all the negative things that we think of as confrontation. It's not a disgust-filled thing. It's a love-filled thing. It's something that's committed to, as Paul said, overcoming evil with good, not with more evil. So the church, as it goes forward, needs to confront and not compromise. We'll close up this morning by asking the question, are there areas of our life, both corporately as a church and individually, where we have compromised? I think there are. What are they? Can we name them? Can we point them out? Can we start the hard work of repenting of them? And can we realize, as um, we read this text, the only way out of this situation, the only way into faithfulness is through what? Community. Through teaching. Through studying. Through living life together. Through doing the hard but beautiful work of praying together and eating together and disagreeing together, studying together, learning together. And then may one day, maybe, the Spirit shows up and says, I need you to do this. And we can go, we're ready. Let's do it. Let's move. Let's engage our world and be a witness to the death and resurrection, to the saving work of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we, we love you. Um, we thank you for your scriptures this morning. We thank you for um, just your salvation and your redemption. We thank you that um, while we were sinners, you died for us, that you show your love for us in this way um, by sending your Son uh, on our behalf. We pray that we would be faithful. We pray that we would not compromise. We pray that our lifestyle would be distinct from a lifestyle that does not know and worship you, that we'd find life, um, the life of the eternity among us now and we pray that we would be effective tools um, in, in, in being a witness and showing others and engaging others with how beautiful and true and perfect you are Father that we would not be um, people who are irrelevant we would not be people who are looked down upon we would not be people who are tuned out but that in the strength and grace of the gospel we would stand up and say there is one who has died and risen and he's calling all to worship and to follow him and to invite them into our community, into our group where we're learning how to do that. We love you. We need your spirit. We need you to do this with us and for us. It's in your son's perfect name that we pray all these things. All of God's people said, Amen. Amen.